Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. My name is Joe Armstrong. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all blessedly without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we are very happy to have as our guests, Hem. Brooklyn, New York-based Hem arrived on the music scene not with a bang, but with a whisper. Composer Dan Massey, along with guitarists Steve Curtis and Gary Maurer, had begun working on a new band, but they needed a singer. An ad placed in the Village Voice got them a large number of responses, but none of them quite fit the hushed, gentle, and melodic music they were creating. Weeks later, a self-professed, non-professional singer named Sally Ellison responded to the ad almost apologetically, sending Massey a tape of herself singing a cappella lullabies that she had recorded for the newborn son of a friend. Her natural and unadorned voice fit the music perfectly, and Hem was born. The band's 2000 debut, Rabbit Songs, featured timeless string arrangements alongside traditional folk instrumentation, and their beautiful whisper caught the ear of NPR and Entertainment Weekly, as well as earning them scores of new fans. Their profile received another big boost when Liberty Mutual used a track from Rabbit Songs in a national advertising campaign. Eveningland followed a few years later, and it expanded the lushness of their sound with a full symphony recorded in Slovakia. 2006's Funnel Cloud found them exploring a more countrypolitan sound that featured a bit more drum set. They scored a 2009 production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night in Central Park and eventually began work on their most recent studio album, 2013's Departure and Farewell. The stark beauty of Hem's music is unparalleled in today's music scene, and we can only hope that the band doesn't make good on the title of their new album. Welcome to Independence Day, Hem. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> and then a chorus of voices. We've got, man, we've got, this might actually set a record for the most number of people we've had in our studio today. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. I know you're on the road, and it's a big deal to give up a Saturday in a beautiful city like Los Angeles to come spend time in a radio studio where it's not quite cool enough for all of us. So let's just kind of go around the room. I want to introduce everybody so we know who we're dealing with here. We'll just start on my right. We have first on guitar. Steve Curtis. Steve Curtis, next, next to him. Gary Maurer. And Gary, and these guys kind of double on mandolin and other instruments as well. They're also songwriters as well. Songwriters, yes, of course. And my name is Sally Ellison, I'm a singer. I'm Don Landis, I'm playing the glockenspiel and singing. I'm Dan Massey, I'm going to be playing piano. I'm Mark Broder on drums. <laughs> I'm George Rush playing bass. Yeah. Heather Zimmerman, violin. Welcome. So welcome to each and every one of you. This is really fantastic to have you in our studio. You've come to the West Coast to do a string of dates, but I get the impression, especially given the size of the ensemble, you don't do a whole lot of touring. Is that correct? <clears throat> yeah, we, we, we did a lot of touring up until uh, about s seven years ago. We, f we toured on our, la our last album, which was uh, Funnel Cloud, and um, then I was heavily pregnant and... And I said, I'm not touring anymore after I gave birth. So basically, I toured till eight and a half months, and then we didn't tour anymore. Until now, I got pregnant again, and then had another baby, and then we toured again. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like a prenatal tour cycle. A lot or a of natal, babies involved. In a lot of babies. How many babies did you say we were talking about this? Twelve babies. There are 12 babies among the people. Well, children. They're later. not babies Sally's anymore. Not I'm sorry, what was that? 12, yeah. 12 babies later, Sally. Yeah, there. I have 12 babies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what, you know, given that you're a long way from home, you guys are all essentially mostly Brooklyn-based. There's someone else in the band from somewhere else? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. You can speak into the microphone. You're welcome. Philadelphia. <laughs> That's the fiddle player over there. Violin. Do you prefer violin or fiddle? Do you make a difference mm. to you? No, no difference. Okay. Just how you play it. So all East Coast-based. What, 
especially given that you have families now. I mean, it must be hard to leave families behind. Like what, and this can be anybody can jump in on this. What, what do you like about touring and what do you don't like about touring given the changes in your lives that have taken place? What is the best thing about tour? You get, you don't have to wake up at seven o'clock in the morning every day. That's the first with me and playing music. This is what we do. And it's not even bands that tour all the time. I think if you're in a band, you can never spend enough time playing music yeah. because once you're successful, then it becomes all this other work that you have yeah. to do that has nothing to do with playing music. And this is what we really wait for is to actually play music. Yeah, and how, how has the business changed? Because your band has been around since 99 or thereabouts, right? How has the business aspect or how has just the, the, the technology of making music changed since you first started? Because you guys were recording on analog initially. Are we you still, still? We still do. Still analog, two inch. The technology hasn't changed very much for us at all. Um, we still sort of do. Departure and Farewell was pretty much recorded the same way as Rabbit Songs was. Mm -hmm. Everybody in a room, overdub the orchestra, finish up the vocals. Yeah. That's it. So how when you're when you're doing your initial tracking, are you pretty much trying to do it as live as possible yeah, in the room? It's all of us. Always yeah. that, that's always been the ethos is that we want to sound as like live as possible. Yeah, like people playing music together in a room, and if there's a hundred person orchestra, we just want it to be a really big room. Yeah, yeah. And so that was part of the kind of ethos of the band from the beginning. Yeah. Definitely to, to maintain that real feel because that's a that's a phrase that I, I like to kind of use a lot when it comes to bands who come through this show. There's a lot of there's a couple ways to go about it. With Pro Tools, you don't ever have to be in the same room. You don't have to sing, really, anymore right. in tune. You know, But all technology can be used for good or it can be used for evil. You know, I came up with the idea last week of something called 90s Amish, where I want to get the Amish to stop using all technology up to a kind of a, a, a date they kind of picked out of the ether. So I wanted to come up with something like, I love my iPhone, but I'd like to get away from it. You right. know, it's like, so I want to be 90s Amish and only use technology that was developed until the 90s. Anyway, no, I mean, we do use Pro Tools. We, you know, we do lots of takes on on analog tape, and then we'll, you know, we'll we'll do composite tracks in Pro Tools as opposed to cutting tape, just because it's faster. Um, but all the sounds go to analog first, and I think, I mean, Pro Tools, you know, it sounds much better than it did when it when it first came out eleven or so yeah, years definitely. ago. It sounded horrible. Now it actually sounds good. But to me, the problem with it is that it forces you to work a certain way, and everybody that uses Pro Tools. Whether they need the gizmos or not, all the auto tuning and beat doctor and all that, they just use it because it's like Pandora's it's box. It's there, and you don't need to. I mean, it's ridiculous, and that's why yeah. so many modern records all sound exactly alike because they're using the same plugins. Yeah, there's always a list of plugins that are the most popular, and recording studios were never like that. Recording studios had their own their own sound. Yeah, and if you use Pro Tools, you're totally just removing the acoustical environment entirely it's not necessary you know yeah it's a shame it's it's a shame really it's it's a terrible way to make music yeah you know and what's again you can use the power for good or power power for evil because you're you're using it yeah, for, no, ostensibly for, for, for something you know, the, you know what the biggest problem with pro tools is it's to, it's psychological is that everybody in the room knows that you can fix it yeah. And it completely relieves all of the performers of having the proper amount of anxiety about playing their parts correctly. And when you yeah. know that you don't have to do it correctly, yeah. you know, that's what happens. So to, it's, it's a shame. To that end, you know, we've got a lot of really, really great musicians in this band and in this room today. And how this is a question I love to ask musicians. Are you guys 
practicing? Like, is there, does, do, are there people in this band who still have a regimen where they sit down? Because John Fogarty was just interviewed the other day, and he, he talks George about... George Rush needs to answer that George question. George should answer this question. <laughs> Bass player George Rush. Yeah. Get on the mic. John Fogarty said that he gets up every day, you know, as old as he, as Fogarty is, he practices hours a day still, right. every yeah. single day. I think Dan, Dan and George do, too. Dan and George play every day, constantly. This is George, bass player. I, Heather and I, Heather, who is conservatory trained, if I may out her, <laughs> we're just talking about that, and unfortunately, the obsessive desire to maintain that practice regimen sort of runs smack into the face of the reality of having small children in your life. Uh, I certainly don't put in the eight or nine hours that I did when I was in my 20s, but there is still the impulse to maintain the craft and to pick up the instrument you know, as much as I can, as often as I can. And I can um, vouch for that since I used to be George's upstairs neighbor. <laughs> and he not only plays the bass, he plays the tuba. Tuba also. <laughs> yes. We don't have here yes, today, he, he practiced that every day as well. Please tell me you played those Mexican polkas. I, I have on occasion, <laughs> yes. And George, I have to say, you have gotten a lot better on the tuba. Thank you very much, Sally. <laughs> Way to go, George. So Hem are my guests tonight on Independence Day. Very, very happy to have them. They're a Brooklyn-based band doing a string of West Coast dates. It's an honor to have them here in our studio tonight. A lot of great people and a great musicians. That's two one of my favorite combinations of people, of something to have on Earth. So we're going to play a track from the most recent record. The record is called Departure and Farewell. This came out earlier this year? That's right. Which it's just a few April months old, though, right? April. Okay, so just a few months old. Which, in I guess, in our very rapidly progressing world, that seems like eons ago, but yeah. it really wasn't that long ago. Uh, and uh, it's been received pretty well. NPR attention for this as well. Yeah. All right. Very nice. Love to hear this. This is the track, "Gently Down the Stream" from Hem here on Independence Day. <laughs>
that is Hem. So very, very happy to them to have them as our guests here on Independence Day tonight. They're a Brooklyn-based band. You can learn everything you need to know about them at hemmusic.com, also facebook.com slash hemband, and you can follow them on Twitter, twitter.com slash hemmusic, or simply at hemmusic. Of course, you can learn about my show at indepday.com. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. I'd love it if you drop by there. We'll have tracks from Hem up there, as well as uh, you can check out lots of other bands we've had on there over the last two and a half years. So once again, we have Hem here, and they're kind of a big ensemble for being a folk-style ensemble. What what challenges does this present other than like simple logistics like hey we're going to have a rehearsal you have, do you have like some kind of list serve group for rehearsals <laughs> or or when you go out on the road like what challenges does it present uh, scheduling the band is is always been a herculean task and it's usually fallen to to gary, gary the, the the producer um she, she, uh, lead <laughs> cat why herder. i'm not commenting right now. <laughs> It's a complete nightmare. I mean, look at all these people in here. This isn't even the whole band. We're still missing people. It's you know, it's a it's a, it's a logistical disaster. It's like being yeah. in the army. It really is. Yeah. Is he I'm like the a, quartermaster? Is he uh, does he rule with an iron fist when it comes to that kind of thing, or is he? I used Nobody to until everybody had kids, and now you can't do it anymore. It used to be you know, show up or you're dead. You can't do that when there's little kids involved. So yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it, this it, is the first time we've seen each other in weeks. We're all like in this room doing it. You know. It's still, you know, there, there's always the the pull to play music together. So even if it's just, you know, Steve coming over to, you know, write songs w- with me around the piano or Gary coming over to do the same. Um, or you know, Heather is actually my sister-in-law. And whenever we get together, we always wind up playing music together. It's just, it's in our DNA. Yeah, that's something that I feel like was in the American tradition in an earlier period, you know, I can remember growing up and going to the southeast where I had relatives, and they would just at the family reunion, like a guitar would just come out of the back of somebody's <clears> truck, and a yep. fiddle would come out of the back of somebody's old Chevy, and they'd just start playing. And that's something that you know, in I grew up outside of Chicago, it wasn't there wasn't that oral tradition of music that you would just it would just happen. It was like a production when it happened, and that's something. Uh, there's a big scene of that here in LA too, out in Laurel Canyon. People just get together and actually play music because they like to play music. Yeah. That's so, the way I always. Uh, grew up basically my family sung we just we sang in car rides we sing around the table we'd sing around in the living room we just that was it was a recreation activity did you sing like harmony with your family members absolutely we had all sorts of harmony and i know a quadrillion songs that you know that i love and that's actually one of the reasons i made that lullaby tape for my friend was that i had taught her a lot of the songs I'd grown up listening to and taught her the harmonies, so we used to sing them together. And so when she had her baby, I wanted her to be able to play them for her baby. So, Yeah. I was trying to get my, like, I was going to say girlfriends, which makes it sound like I've got a plurality of girlfriends. You are a stud. But I mean, uh, when, when the, the girlfriend trying to get them to sing with me when they're musicians, like, people are bashful about it. It's kind of strange. I'm, I'm like you. Like I, it, I, Everywhere I go, like the world's up lining itself up in bars and beats and measures and harmony and counterpoint and and that seems definitely how it is for you guys. It couldn't be any other way. I mean, you guys are among the most musical bands I know. And like a musical musical music is not a given. Yeah. You know, music now I think is more rhythmic it seems than it is melodic. Well I mean I think that we've always been about the song more than anything and the idea of songs being part of a conversation that is going on and in the folk tradition, especially where songs tend to be misheard or, or songs tend to be adapted from one another and grow out of one another. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, for us, it's it's the conversation song and the conversation. Yeah. How, how about we hear a little bit right now? Would that be cool? Play a little music for us in our studio. Wonderful. What's this going to be? What's our first track tonight? It'll be Tourniquet, which is um, off of our new album, Departure and Farewell. All right. This is Hem on Independence Day. Hem here on Independence Day with a track from their most recent record, another beautiful record by Hem. And I have to say, you know, the effusive praise, uh, I've had effusive, effusive praise for Rabbit Songs since it came out. Uh, and this is, you know, I like a lot of music for a lot of different reasons, but I like really quiet music. 
And when that record came out, I think there was just a hole in my life that that song, that, that whole album just plugged into directly. And I've been telling people, um, I hope that I've probably sold hundreds of the copies of your record because I go everywhere I go, I'm like an evangelist for rabbit songs. It's like I tell people it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And was this, like how, was this like planned from the beginning to do quiet music, to do something like in this term there's not a lot of electric instruments in this like on the first record i think the uh, pedal steel is that the only yeah. electric instrument on yeah. the first record yeah that's it on the first record yeah so this was built in <clears throat> from the ground floor <clears throat> i mean i think this is the music that that fills the hole in in our uh musical hearts um and you know certainly we were we weren't necessarily encouraged that it would find an audience when we were making <laughs> no. rabbit songs in fact, the A and R people that would be hanging around the studios would hear it and say, oh, "Well, it's pretty, but it ain't gonna sell." <laughs> quote: yeah. "It's beautiful, but no one's going to listen to it." <laughs> I think it's a direct quote. Yeah, and from one of those guys. Yeah, and it was NPR. A lot they know. It was kind of the first break, for lack of a better word, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All things considered, was gigantic. We were number one on Amazon after that for what, like three or four days, right? Yeah. Which is a big deal. Like that's kind of how that's we the benchmark. Number one on now. Amazon for maybe. Th- three hours no, but so. it was a th- beautiful three hours but yeah. I, I remember the producer for all things considered calling uh, speaking to him at, at one point and they said that we love this album and we're going to make sure that it finds its audience yeah and they did damn i know it was, it <laughs> was something really, that doesn't it didn't seems like that doesn't really happen nowadays in the in the business it seems so fractious the way yeah. the business is because the the way that you know the old model might have been a little suspect with the you know like a and r guys and labels and like investing money it was kind of like a, a, a bank loan with really bad terms yeah it seems like the way yeah. it was before and people you know some people are very romantic when they think back to that time oh it was so much better and some people look back at that time as they got ripped off like the whole semi-sonic thing jake slichter's record about the music business is very critical uh, of, i'm sure of the there's situation. varying opinions about this but i i mean there's there's still a major difference like there's no such thing as a band that gets signed to like a development style deal yeah. where they get increased budgets and they have to go work their ass off and yeah. eventually they make a lot of money and the label makes a lot of money yeah. through record sales. Like, I probably shouldn't say this on the radio, but iTunes invests nothing. Right. And they take a dollar out of a dollar twenty nine for every song. I mean, that's that's worse than the major label record because they right. have no investment. Yeah, and they. If you don't put your record on iTunes, you're pretty much guaranteed that no one is going to is going to buy yeah. it. And they so, position themselves as that's the main portal that yeah. people yeah, go like, to. Okay, major labels were ter- a terrible thing for bands like him, but yeah, if you don't bands now, if you don't play a hundred shows a year, you're virtually guaranteed that you cannot make a living. The, 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 the even sadder thing is that the, that iTunes is, you know, like Midas compared to Spotify. Or I know. I, mean, yeah, just, I know, yeah. it is. So, so I can't, I understand the argument, but it's not, and I love Apple products, you know, I have a MacBook Pro and all that stuff, but it's not a better setup for the musician at all. It's much worse because yeah. recorded music is now virtually worthless. It, there's no value. You cannot sell music and make a living. It's impossible. Yeah. You cannot do it. As far Look as at even artists like U2 and Bruce Springsteen that were guaranteed like 7 million sales every time they put it they sell 100,000 records now, 200,000 yeah. records. That's it. Yeah, the economies of scale have changed very, yeah, very drastically. It's a completely different thing. And so. if a band like you, you know, you guys aren't a road dog band. No. Like you said, 12 children. No, You're not out making we, a we lot of... Be, yeah revenue um so i'm assuming that just means that there's a lot of other things that you guys are doing for income 
right? Hem's not the thing. We're all um, in the business of being in ill repute, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Your tic-tac yeah, we all peddlers. Have to do, we all have to do other. I mean, George pretty much plays music for a living. Yeah. That's, that's not uncommon. I mean, most musicians that I have through here, whether they're a local group or a band, I mean, I've had groups that people know nationally recognized names, unlike, you know, like yourselves, right. and they're doing random things. Yeah. Well, Gary's a producer, so he, that's how Engineer. he makes his living, right. and, that's, and that's what he did before, and yeah. he still does it. I'm sure. married to a rich woman. That doesn't hurt either. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I'm actually mostly, I would say more than anything, I'm a mom. Yeah. I'm a housewife. That's what I am. Yeah, it's good work if you can House get show. it. I don't. I don't really have that option. I guess it could be Mr. Mom, and I could decide if I'm going to wire it 220 or 221. Right? Whatever it takes. That's, right. That's the quote Whatever from that. It takes, yeah. All right. So more more music. Let's get back to more music. Where we've getting off on the quoting uh, jag here. So what's the next tune going to be, guys? This next song is called "Walking Past the Graveyard, Not Breathing." I'm walking past the graveyard. We're holding in our breaths It's a long way to the corner Trying not to wake the guest inside The rows of mausoleums The gates with iron wings We are there though we can't see them And the breath inside is burning Though the games we played as children Seem to harden to bone running from this city made of stone I'm walking past the graveyard may the breath inside me stay as I stumble out the barroom or I'm face down in the hall you 
once again, Hem on Independence Day. They're Brooklyn-based. They are out here in Los Angeles. They've got a whole run of West Coast dates. Later on this year, you can find them in the UK. They're playing in London and Bath, or as they say, Bath. I've played in Bath. You know, Peter Gabriel's studio is in, is in Bath. He's big time. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. <laughs> he is big time. He's uh, a cool studio, too. He's got that whole thing with the... He's got a river that goes through. He's got a river that goes through his studio, and he's got panels that come down with different reflecting services. It's pretty techno-geek stuff when it comes to recording. But anyway, so very happy to have him. Uh, they were When they were in Los Angeles, they were at the Troubadour. Also, they played up in San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. Uh, they're back home by now, however. So let's talk just a little bit about writing and how you approach writing. There's more than one writer in this band. And is it fairly democratic how you go about this process? Or is it uh, kind of a a benevolent dictatorship or what? I don't – I mean I think that whoever – there are three writers in the band. And we all have very, very, very strong feelings about our babies. And um, yeah, I would definitely say it is not democratic, although we all trust each other's taste – that we all influence each, the creation of each other's songs. Yeah, are there, are there co-writes too? There are, and in fact, this new album has more co-writes than any other album. Um, basically, Gary, I, I think, I think Gary and Steve have never collaborated themselves. No. We, we, we basically don't speak to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a musical form, anyway. So, so when Gary collaborates, he collaborates with me, and. Uh, and it's it's a great collaboration because he basically just comes in with this amazing idea and then gives it to me and walks out of the room. Dan has to write the song and I go home. <laughs> yeah, works for me. And then S- Steve is is much more self contained. So, uh, but we have except for, the, yeah, except for the fact that Dan and I have known each other for pushing twenty five years now. And then, like the like you said, the 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 influence that we have on each other is strong, even when we're yielding opinion and decision to one another. Yeah. Lately, we've actually started a little weekly songwriters group that Don's included. Don is also a very talented songwriter. And uh, so we play each other songs and talk about it. And I I don't know. I mean, I just just feel like, like I said earlier about the conversation that songs are a part of. I feel like we have always influenced each other and the songs that we write. Yeah, there's a level of trust with co-writing that is, because uh, you have to trust them as people to like not be crazy and to show up and when and where they say they're going to show up. Mm-hmm. The music business is rife with issues that complicates that. But then there's also that, that other kind of otherworldly level that you have to exist upon musically where you can, because when you're writing, you're kind of opening up your heart. You're exposing you know, fears and doubts and things about the world that are these sometimes very deep emotions. And to open that up to another person and trust them to come in and respect that and tell you when the idea is not good, but yet you still have to get the idea across is a very delicate balance, I think. And in this situation, I also find it very unique. You're writing for another singer in Sally. Because, you know, when I write, you know, I'm always thinking about writing for my own voice and my own limitations and things that I'm good at. So I can kind of write my music to fit that. You know, and all of you are writing for Sally. And Sally, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, for what for you, um, has, have they ever written a line or a word or a phrase that, like, didn't sound like it could fit in your voice or fit in your... Dan, do you want to answer I that? I would love to answer that question. <laughs> yes. All, all the time she, she'll be like, uh, no, I'm not singing that. <laughs> she's very, she's, she's really... I'm uh, not very, you were saying how delicate you need to be if you're co-writing. I was like, boy, I'm really just not that. I'm terrible. I'm very straightforward. And when I'm think when I'm in kind of work mode, I'm just, I'm not trying to be mean or brutal, but I just, 
it's more like I'm trying to be economical. So I'll say, no, uh, absolutely Every not. now and That's then I'll look work. over and the, she'll have a look like she just swallowed a fly. <laughs> just, she'll be like. I mean, it's very, very, yeah. it, I don't have to do it very often. I don't have to bring out the big guns very often. <laughs> but when I do, they, they're all very nice about respecting me when I ask or, or tell, I should say, them that something's not working. For most, but that's it for most listeners. The vocals is the focal point. Because everyone has a voice. Whether or not you play an instrument, a lot of human beings don't. Most human beings are not musicians, but a lot of them are. But everyone has a voice. So I think everyone relates to the singer more than anything else, which is why vocals are so important when it comes to recording and in live sound. So for you as the singer, it's so important that those words make sense to you or they you feel that you can phrase them. You can't them. deliver something. You can't have an honest... Um, yeah, interpretation you or presentation. You can't, you can't, I mean, I can't anyway. I mean, I think some, some people... I can, but not uh, not when I'm trying to be serious. Yeah. I very rarely try to be serious, but when I'm singing, usually it's a serious thing. And so one of the things that I... that I One of the things I really cherish about being in him is that these guys do write such insanely beautiful songs. And so I get to be the person that gets to... I mean, we all, when we're listening to the songs and we're singing in our car or in the shower or over top of the song, the CD when we're playing a record, we're all having our own experience with that music, feeling our own thoughts, having that apply to our own lives or someone's, some other life that we are thinking about. It's a very personal experience. It just so happens that there's somebody recording me when I do it, so I get to be you know, the one that gets to sort of have ownership over it in that way, which is really a treat, you know, yeah. a real treat for me. Yeah, they are great writers, all of you gentlemen. And and Dawn, I know you're a writer as well. Dawn Landis mm-hmm. opening up for us tonight. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes, she Yay. is. I've seen her play before. <laughs> great to have her along. Um, how about another song? This song's called The Seed. Is and it will also, when we play the next song, they kind of go hand in hand. This song's called The Seed. This is one of the co-writes between Steve and I.
You are listening to Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. Every week I bring you artists from Los Angeles and far, far beyond. Tonight, Far Beyond is Brooklyn, and that band is Hem. We're very, very happy to have them in our studio. They're doing a set of West Coast dates, and they're doing some dates in the U.K. after that. You can learn about them at hemmusic.com, H-E-M-M-U-S-I-C.com, and, of course, indepday.com to learn about me and my show. Once again, we were talking just a little bit about writing before, um, and one thing that's really unique about the way you guys are writing, these are male writers writing for a female voice. And how do you approach that as a writer, you know, writing? Because it's, it's not just writing for a higher register. It's a whole different perspective, you know, from the female perspective. Well, I mean, Sally's instrument is, at this point, it is the, the voice that I hear in my head when I'm writing music. And like you said, it's not just the fact that, it, that it's a higher re- register, it's it's the ability to comfort that I hear in her voice that allows me to write some very dark things, I think, and get away with it. Also, the fact that she has this very almost unemotional, like, there's, like it's, it's, she, there's like a removed, there's something removed from her, I, I don't know how I I'm think saying you, this. I think what you, I think, I think what you're trying to talk about is more not unemotional, but not overly emotional. Exactly. So I could write very um, hyper-emotional lyrics that don't come off as pathetic in some ways. Well, it can be cheesy, I think. Sometimes yeah. if, yeah. You're, if you're writing something, um, if, you're, if, if Dan's writing something that's so p- true, sometimes if you say something that's really uh, genuine and true, it can be corny. Yeah. So I think if you, if you, I mean, it's not my nature to sing, you know, it, you know, like Mariah Carey, but if I was to sing Dan's songs like Mariah Carey, they would, ha- they would have a whole different feeling than if you sing them as if it's more of a, you know, a, a private, genuine moment, mm-hmm. which is more the way I was taught to sing, which is, you know, don't do anything in public. This, that's embarrassing. <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't show off. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's. Well, for, for being someone who professed to be kind of a non-professional singer when you got started with this whole thing, you, do, you, you have a natural way about doing it in a, a respectful way. You know, knowing uh, the, I think the hallmark of a, of a seasoned musician or uh, a good musician is knowing what not to play or knowing what not to sing or knowing what to leave out. Young musicians are especially guilty of playing a lot of notes and playing really, really fast. And some younger musicians are more seasoned right out of the gate and they're, they know that. They know to leave rests you know, because you're not getting paid by the note, generally speaking, unless you know, there's a couple people who I guess are, but by and large, you're not. So you, 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 the listener needs that break. You know, they need to. You know, so many singers. It seems like you know, especially with the the advent of the the TV shows. What are they called? Um, the, the, the Voice Idol, and American kind of Idol, and we're all. Everybody thinks their perception of a good singer now is like Mariah Carey and singing a lot of notes and a lot of adornment. But especially with the style of music you do, it reflects that looking back in time to when it was a simpler time and people just sang melodies that were beautiful. They didn't need stuff, you know, elisions and glissandos and acrobatics. crazy crazy acrobatics. <laughs> Indeed, very, very well put. Um, I don't think I could do it either. <laughs> I mean, like that, I'm impressed by people who can yeah. do that. It's it's impressive. I don't think there's, there is certainly a place for, a large place for that in, in American, in music currently today. It yeah. just isn't a place that I can live in. Yeah, there's, well, there's no shortage of that, so it's okay. <laughs> we don't, I'm not sure that we need more of that. Um, you know, so stylistically speaking, you know, to make kind of a little bit of a turn, I mean, everybody, do other people in this band play in other bands as well? I mean, obviously, Dawn, you have got your, mm-hmm. whole, your entire own 
like career and albums going. Sure. And she's got other I bands. I have as a well. girl group too. We a do girl group. Three part run. It's the bandana splits. Mm-hmm. Best. Best album. Sally's son was our first real big huge fan. fan. It's my, it was my son's <laughs> first favorite album. Yeah, definitely. But are there? I mean, with this many people in the band, I mean, are there closet metalheads in the band? Mark Broder is our secret weapon. Mark Broder used to be in the band with Billy Idol. When he first got really big, came over to the states, he can tell you some really good stories about that. He was in the band with Kiss. Who else, Mark? Tell us all about it. Seventies roots. Seventies classic rock. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, uh, my roots are more like Alice Cooper and the Winter Brothers and uh, Billy Idol. But uh, I play with a few projects now. I play with like a, a sort of surf rock band. I play with a guy named Alan Merrill who wrote I Love Rock and Roll. And you know, I, but I play all kinds of music, singer, songwriter. Yeah. Hem is the most extreme to one side I play. and <laughs> He doesn't do know. anything else like yeah. him. <laughs> well, that's just it. With your background playing the styles of music, like how did they sell you on the, on the idea for this very quiet, kind of reserved music where you're almost not playing sometimes? I, it seems. I, I didn't think I should do it. I mean, I kind of said to them, do you know I, what kind of drummer I am? And <laughs> I, I talked them into it. Yeah. And they okay. said, whatever. Mark and I have, been, have known each other for a very, very long time, like, what, 25 years or something yeah. like that? Yeah. But I had never played with uh, brushes or anything like that. I just was a sticks rock player, and I, I learned to play less with him because I didn't want to get in the way. And so, uh, yeah, that taught me a lot, you know, to play with mallets and brushes and anything but sticks hitting hard. Yeah, so, not allowed. <laughs> it's yeah. not allowed. Not not loud. <laughs> right. Not loud. Get one, two songs a night. That's it. This is George, the bass player. I made a point on the last show of our, the first tour I did with them in England of watching Mark for the entire set because Mark has multiple sets of each hitting implement lined up on and around his drum set and he usually switches sometimes three times per song, brushes, mallets, sticks. And I just, and, and I would stand there hearing it every night and, and I made a point on that last show of just watching him do it and just marveling at his dexterity of... It's true. He, do, Mark, does it on recordings too. We don't. Those are not edits. Mark switches live <laughs> in the recording studio, and usually we will put like a down jacket yeah. on the floor next to Mark's drum kit, so he can just drop sticks and grab the next thing. Yeah. So if you listen really closely, yeah. I know there's one song where it's, is it Lucky, where it's obvious you can actually hear the stick hit the floor. But if you really listen closely, you'll hear you'll Once you'll you'll hear Mark switching instruments. I did a yeah. Gary, where uh, I asked him if he'd catch the sticks because I didn't have time to drop them, so I kind of tried to throw them to him in the air so he'd catch them. They wouldn't make any sound. It didn't it didn't make the cut though. That's about as exciting as we get. <laughs> yeah. That is the <laughs> some choreography at least. Yeah, yeah it is you literally know? like you know the the most uh... acrobatic. Yeah. Yes, there you go. All right, how about some more music? Let's jump in and get some get, get you what let's do what you do best. All right, this song's called The Jack Pine. Okay. And the song is, this is one of our, we have a whole divorce set on our, on our tour this time. And, and how do your spouses feel about that? Well, the, one, those are the ones that would feel anything about it are no longer with us. They're divorced, so screw them. Just kidding. <laughs> set the field fire we set the lark to fly the smoke fell low and even then the flames but blocked the light 
Just like the rains in winter When the levee's bare bend The road has got a foot of water But the fields are full again You've fallen, broken, see Once again, very, very happy to have him here on Independence Day. They're so quiet and beautiful. I feel like I myself should be talking to you very, very quietly. I'm not sure if I can talk to you beautifully, but I'll do my best. <laughs> you can learn about them at hemmusic.com, and of course, you can drop by and see all these tracks at indepthday.com, where someday we may even have video up there as soon as I get a whole legion of interns to put those th- sorts of things together. So there was kind of a long break between your last two albums. Um, tell me about, tell me why that was, and then what got you back to doing the giant ensemble to get the band back together to do a record against like the Blues Brothers. We're getting the band back together. Well, the giant break was largely uh, driven by uh, my own uh, falling apartness. <laughs> but um, we started the album not long after we finished Final Cloud in, I think, 2007 or 2000, 2008. And then we had thought that it would be the last album and in the course of making the album, just my life went through a number of upheavals with divorce and addiction and so on and so forth. And eventually it just became impossible to even finish the album. But um, it was in sort of getting my own life back together that finishing that album became a priority for me. And I uh, was fortunate enough that uh, everyone was still really supportive. Yeah. So music is almost like a salvation, for lack of a better word. It's not just something you love to do. It's something that maybe grounds you. Oh, very much so. I mean, I've always written, I've said in the past, like, I write for comfort. You know, you, you write to sort of offset some of the harder things of life. And um, for me, that's always been the case with him. Yeah. And then when you, this is kind of weird in music theory inside baseball, but when you write, because you're a very trained musician, it seems. So when you score, are you giving people charts? Like when you come into a hems, like, hey, I've got a new tune. Do you sit down around the piano and just kind of hammer it out? Or do you go, here, here's a chart? Not, I mean, with, with these musicians, there's no need to do that. I mean, it's, it's about the collaboration of bringing a song to this group of people. Okay. And then Gary and I have very particular ideas about arrangements and what the album what the entire song should sound like, and then we'll hire someone like Greg Pliska, our arranger, to flesh out orchestral ideas. Okay. So it's more organic than sometimes it seems like it might be, because it seems like with all these orchestral instruments, it seems like so many orchestral players, and you could speak to this, actually. It's like they're kind of glued to the page somewhat. You know, people who are very, very classically trained. Right. But but I'm the only classical 
dork up here who <laughs> needs to stand in music. So I'm the only one because that's how I was trained and that's just how I work. But they don't yeah. need that. I'm the yeah, because there, there have been times where I've scored <laughs> string parts for projects that I've produced and I've hired like UCLA grad students to come in and play songs. And they were fantastic. But there were terms, you know, that I needed their help a little bit because I'm not the best arranger when it comes to those sorts of things. I needed just a little bit of help to lean on them to say, well, does that work with your instrument? And they would say, well, let's change this or this. But when if, if it ever got to the point where we were off the page, they had a kind of a hard time, like saying, well, here, I need you to do something in these two measures. I don't know exactly what. And they were a little lost sometimes. So this is a much more organic situation, it seems like. In general, I mean, we've always, the tension has always been be, between the, this very organic playing that takes place within this core group yeah. and then the the very written down parts right. that the, the the basic tracks like what the eight of us do here is rarely there's really not that much discussion about it we sort of just figure it out okay and it's not like we're telling mark and you know writing it down and say like play exactly this we just kind of figure it out and you know we've worked together enough that it bec it becomes Evident to everybody, like yeah. eventually, like okay, this is how the song goes. That's yeah, it, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And then when you, for Evening Land, you had a much bigger orchestra, correct? Yes. You went to Slovakia. Slovakia. Tell yes. me a little bit about that experience, because there are, it seems like there are a few acts who get the opportunity to have like a full <clears throat> orchestra play at one time on your recordings. Well, I think you know we've this band has really f followed the arc of the music industry, and and we were I th I think we were the last signing for DreamWorks. DreamWorks. That's apparently true. Yes. So we, that album was was started when we were with DreamWorks right. Records, and so we had a budget, mm -hmm. and we had a vision, <laughs> and we had luckily Lenny Warnker, who was our and our person, was incredibly supportive yeah. of, of that vision, and said, you know, he said, do whatever, just do what you do. <laughs> Basically, just do whatever you want to do. It's fine. Just include a lot of bells. Yeah, yeah. lots of bells. Now, how bells. many of you went? over to do that. Dan and myself and Greg Pliska, our ranger, okay. and our former manager was with us at the time also. Yeah. How does one um, even contract? You know how it was, through, it was through Greg Calby, right? Mm -hmm. Greg Calby, okay. the famous mastering engineer at Sterling Sound. We were there mastering, what, a single or something? I can't remember what it was. Um, I'm talking with my mouth. Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. And the orchestra thing came up and he said, oh, I just mastered all this. So there's this guy in Canada, he's Slovakian, who contracts... And it's the Slovak National Radio Orchestra. It's, it's like cool. an official, like yeah. governmental, you know, agency. And he said, just call this guy in Canada, and he'll set it up for you. So that's exactly what we did. But it's it was, the, the recording adventure was a whole. And I, if we should, it was, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know who to call. To be get, beautiful, beautiful room and all that. But it was, it was quite an adventure once we got there because all of the quote equipment that was supposed to be there was actually not there and we spent the first two days driving around trying to rent and borrow whatever equipment we could find yeah which is a strange experience and different places like bratislava which is a total you know eastern block city yeah. and like, like trying to find the nine volt battery like what do you do i don't know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah so very very nice so I, I have one more question and i want you to get guys uh, i guess to play a track from rabbit songs your first record we'll go back got back to the beginning as they say uh you know, there's this famous story of the beginning of this band, the genesis of the band with Sally and the tape. Um, and I've always wanted to ask you guys this. What would you have done if she hadn't sent you the tape? Would you have just kind of kept looking and found a singer? or We, you, we had a plan it, maybe not to use the same singer for the entire record. There was okay. going to be maybe three or four or five singers. And we knew people that, you know, would have been competent, I suppose, but... It wouldn't have been him. It would have been. Him. It yeah. would not have been him. It would never. Yeah. If yeah. it wasn't, if Sally hadn't come along, it would have been something else, and maybe never progressed past 
that original batch of songs. I don't know. Right? Well, I think that's I right. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am. But even Sally. when we recorded, um, we weren't him either. We were just <clears throat> recording, you know, we, it was just going to be one off yeah. recording. And it just happened that, that when it took off in England, we suddenly found ourselves being asked to tour. And yeah. we all, I was a television news producer. I had to quit my job eventually because all my vacation had been spent on touring and right. making it made a choice. So th I think yeah. that, that just, it was one of those weird things in, that happens in any art field where you just luck out, basically. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a bold choice. You know, I mean, musicians are lucky to get to the point where they can make that choice or it's a, it's a viable choice to make. It's a scary choice, I imagine. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think that if you're, uh, if you're ready f to try something new, it's not. It's just like, you know, I mean, for most everyone here, that's that's what they do. For me, you know, I was ready to, to do something more creative for a while, you know? Yeah. And so that was, it was a, it was an adventure, you know? That's what life's about. It is what life's about. I, I couldn't agree more. I, that's on my business card. It says, like, musician, adventurer, and inquisitive guy. <laughs> hope that describes me at least somewhat so how about some this uh, something from rabbit songs perhaps this is called half acre and if might, might make you want to buy insurance i don't know we'll see
absolutely beautiful. Thank you so very much. It's an honor, an absolute honor to have you on my show playing Thanks, that song from an album that means quite a bit to me. So thank you for making it. Um, one last question before you guys get on out of here. Uh, you know, it's, I'm sure this has come up in a lot of interviews, but the album name is Departure and Farewell. Is there a future for the project once this is done? Is it just kind of out there in the ether and you'll see what happens come what may? Uh, plans for a world tour with Pink Floyd when they get back together? What's the story? Let's do that. We hadn't put our finger on it. But that, that sounds pretty good, I think. I mean, I think that we, we genuinely hope that there is a future. Obviously, the music industry has changed and our lives are, have changed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a question mark right now. But Please send your ideas for merchandise to hemmusic.com. <laughs> we need all the help we can get. We need, we need to get, like, that odd future merchandise thing <laughs> happening, socks and stuff, you know? We learned that Joe brews beer. Maybe you want to go into it. <laughs> yeah, Joe, brew us some beer. Okay. Half Acre, how about that as a name I of a beer? I can do. Well, Half Acre's uh -huh. already been taken, but I, I can probably come up <laughs> some with something else. There's, you've got, there's a lot to work with in terms of, of this. So, Hem, thank you so very much Joe, for coming so out for and spending us. time. Like I said, it was like I said before, it was an honor to have you on the show. Um, and, you know, I, for my vote, you know, th thank you very much for making all the music you've made over the years. If this happens to be kind of the, the winding down of this, you know, it, there hasn't been beautiful music made in the new millennium and maybe even before, too. So, uh, but keep making it for, for me because someday I'll have kids and I want, I want you to sing lullabies to my kids because that's the coolest thing in the world. So uh, thank you to Sally Allison, Dan Massey, Steve Curtis, Gary Maurer, George Rush, Mark Broder, Heather Massey, Don Landis, and the MIA Bob Hoffnar, the pedal steel player who is actually not here today. He's in Austin, you said? Yep, that's where he lives He's now. With his wife. His wife. He's off the market, lady. Mrs. Hoffnar. <laughs> so thanks to him, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. And a very special thanks to Valentino Rivera and Sarah Barker from Lancer Radio. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do anything, please be good to one another. <laughs>